And would you pray with me for just a second? God, we want that song to be true of us in our lives. So help us. Help us to live a life that says where you lead us, we'll follow you. Help us to have that kind of faith, God, that kind of trust in you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible is full of all kinds of parables and promises that start with the word, if. Like this one out of Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, God says, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Or in Matthew, Jesus said, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And throughout Scripture, we find people who are on the brink of desperation, who are willing to believe that if they act in faith, then the possibilities of what God can do in their life, the possibilities are just endless. But what happens if not. What happens if we pray? What happens if we're humble? What happens if we seek God? If we believe? If we do everything that's on the backside of that if, and God still says no? We've all been there. We've asked the tough questions. Why did my mother, my father, die even though I asked God to heal them? Why hasn't God answered my prayer for a job? Why haven't I been able to find a Christian spouse even though I pray and ask God for one every single day? The land of if not is a tough place for faith to thrive. I trust you to heal me, God. But if not, I trust you, God, to mend my broken marriage. But if not, I trust you, God, to meet my needs, my family's needs, my friends' needs. But if not, The passage we'll look at today, Habakkuk chapter 3, finds him entering into his own land of if not. And as we read it, we just find that his faith, oddly enough, is growing in the land of if not. His mood is lifting. He's seeing that God really is in control even there. That God is working for his ultimate good, for his friends, for his country's ultimate good. And Habakkuk, in that place, writes not a prophecy, but a song. And the song is upbeat. It's a worship song that recalls God's faithfulness, recalls God's goodness. It's a song that basically says, do it again, God. I know God that you have done great things in our past. Do it again. Show your power. Show your wisdom. Draw us to you, God. He says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. 
I stand in awe of your deeds, God. Repeat them in our day. Do it again. In our time, make them known. Just this one thing, God. In your wrath, please, remember mercy. Well, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army conquered Judah. It took a series of raids and sieges, but it happened. Everything that God told Habakkuk was going to happen, happened. And in 605 B.C., Judah fell, and Babylon deported all the promising young men from Judah. They took them to Babylon to learn the culture and the language and the literature of Babylon. And among those men were four that we know from the writings of the Old Testament. There were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know the last three better from their Babylonian names they were given. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as one young child in Sunday school called them, Meshach, Yorshak, and a bungalow. Whatever you call them, as long as you remember them, it'll be helpful for the rest of the message. These four men, in their early years in Babylon, went through great tests of their faith. And respectfully, they stood up to the king of Babylon. And in the process of standing up to him, and as a result of those tests, they ended up being promoted to positions of authority in the king's court. Prominence, visibility, authority. Years later, Nebuchadnezzar, as king, had this bizarre idea, as kings often did. And so he built this statue, this 90-foot-high, 9-foot-wide tower of gold. It tells you what he had collected in all of his raiding and conquering of all of these countries. 90 feet high, 9 foot wide tower of gold that he built. And he commanded that everyone from the royal court down to the most common peasant, when they heard a particular set of music played, had to bow down and worship this tower of gold as a sign of their submission to him as the king of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego persisted in their faith in God. And they refused to bow to this idol, even when they were brought in front of the king and were commanded to do so personally by the king. They respectfully refused. Here's their courageous response. King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If, here's this if proposition, if then, we talked about a minute ago, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we'll not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. These three men have just declared their if not faith in the face of death. The first if statement they gave was rooted in God's ability. They said, look, you can throw us in. If you do, then God's able to deliver us. He is absolutely able to save us no matter what you do. The second if statement 
doesn't have anything to do with God's ability. It has everything to do with how they were going to respond to God's decision, his will in the situation. We know God's able to deliver, but even if he does not, we want you to know we're not going to serve your gods. In that moment, Daniel's friends had no idea what the outcome would be. We do because we've read the rest of the story. They stood precariously in the land between if and if not. And in that moment, they stood strong in God is able confidence and if not faith. Knowing in that moment that what stood between those two positions was a furnace that was able to kill them. You know, I've been riding motorcycles uh, almost all my life. I started at the age of seven or eight on dirt bikes on the farm. I've been riding my entire life. Uh, But a few years ago, I let my motorcycle license lapse, the endorsement. And so two years ago, I went back and took the safety course uh, here in Illinois so that I could get my license much easier. It was a fascinating two and a half days of classroom and riding again. Uh, and taking the safety course. I didn't have to take it when I got my license the first time. One of the profound things that they taught in that two and a half days uh, was this. When you're riding the bike and you're making turns, don't look right in front of you. Look further down the road. Now, that sounds really simple to just say it. But if you're making a turn in an intersection, look where you want to go and you'll get there. I was talking with one of the guys after the first service, and he said, yeah, our instructor was even more deliberate than that. He said, don't even try to turn your bike. If you just look where you want to go, the bike will turn with you. And it's fascinating. It works that way. Because your natural tendency when you ride the motorcycle is to look right in front of you. Look right at the wheel in the road. And they guaranteed us, said, you do that, you're going to end up in the ditch. You're not going to make your turn. Look 100, 150, 200 feet ahead of you, where you want to go. You'll make the turn. It seems simple, but you'd be amazed. That first morning, how many of us didn't follow their instructions and didn't make the turns? We killed a lot of those little orange cones that they set up on the course that morning, just run right over, just, you know, and they'd yell at us, pick up your head, look where you're going, don't look at your tire. And you go, crap, I was watching the spokes turn in the tires, you know. Just happens that way. If not faith, is a lot like that. If not faith, takes a longer look beyond our immediate circumstances, beyond what's right around us, beyond what we're just going through in the moment. If not faith, looks beyond and looks at the character and the goodness of God and takes what's happening around us and looks at eternity as well and helps us through. And that's a great theory It's a great principle to talk about. It's really easy to sit here on the stage and talk to you about that. It's even easy to sit in the cafe over a cup of coffee and talk about if not faith and how to, you know, take a longer look at the perspective in your life. Sounds great when we talk about it. It gets tougher when it gets personal. I chose this message series back before Easter, back in March and April trying to figure out what I would do for a summer series. 
And so I chose the book of Habakkuk, and I chose the four titles and the passages, and even specifically this one, on the land of If Not, back before Easter, and sent it off to Darren. And I thought, this would be a good message, good title, good topic. It'll be interesting. I thought, yep, this will do. The Monday after Easter, I had an appointment with my doctor. I had a pulled muscle in my back, I thought. I'd done something strange to my back, and so I did the guy thing. You know, I waited two or three months. Right? You with me, guys? Don't go to the doctor right away. That's a dumb thing to do, right? Um, So I waited two or three months. Uh, Also, in that same time period, doing the requisite guy thing of ignoring my wife's admonition to go ahead and go to the doctor and see what was wrong. Still with me? You definitely don't listen to your wife right away. You ignore that, and then you go to the doctor. Um, You don't have to nod because your wife is right there with you. But in your head, I hear you agreeing with me. So I went to the doctor the Monday after Easter. um, And he and I had this banter going back and forth. And, you know, he agreed, yep, it's a guy thing to ignore. And so we, he checked me out. He said, yeah, I think it's a pulled muscle. We'll set up some physical therapy. And I, in my head, was going, which I won't go to. Um, you know, so we talked. And right as he was about to finish up, I said, oh, by the way, I did, you know, pass a kidney stone about six weeks ago. I don't know if that has any bearing on this as well. He overreacted, which is why I didn't want to tell him about it. Um, you know, and ordered, you know, some x-rays. So an hour later... You know, I find myself sitting and waiting for an x-ray to see, you know, if there are any more stones in my kidneys. Um, And I get a phone call a few days later from the doctor. And he informs me that my x-rays of my kidneys vaguely resemble the bottom of a fish tank. Um, There's three stones on the right, three stones on the left. Awesome. Um... that could be part of my pain. And, and he pauses. Not really a good thing when your doctor says and, and pauses. Just clue, tuck that one away if you ever need it. He says, um, there also the x-ray showed up a cyst on your right kidney. I go, really? He goes, yeah. And the odd thing is, x-rays don't usually show a cyst. They just don't show up on an x-ray. Really? What does that mean? He goes, well, um, let's get some more tests and we'll talk about it. Awesome. So he scheduled a CT scan a week later. Um, We went in. No big deal, right? Get a CT scan. It's not going to show anything. We go out to breakfast. And he calls me back within the hour. Also not a good thing. You either have a doctor with very few patients who gives you lots of attention, or it's not a good thing when your doctor calls you within the hour. Um, he calls me and he says, the results of the CT scan are concerning to him. Why? Um, and then he's a little vague, so I press him. Says, well, I want to do an ultrasound, and then we'll talk about it. He goes, no, let's talk about it now. Um, well, the short of it, without walking through all the, the conversation with him, is that the CT scan shows all the signs of the cyst Uh, are approaching something that has the possibility of being malignant. Yeah. And so that just stops you cold when you hear those words. The cyst is half the size of my kidney. It's inside and outside of my kidney. And he said, honestly, we need to get you to a specialist because this is 
way above my pay grade. So it'll take about two weeks to get you into the specialist, and he'll want to run more tests just to see what's going on. I'm pretty sure you're okay, but let's go ahead and do this. So, yeah, that's very reassuring. Thanks. Pretty sure you're okay is a wonderful word to hear from your doctor. Um, that comes with a nice bouquet of flowers. Two weeks, when they've said the words cancer, two weeks might as well be two years. And I told Connie, I said, you know, it's ironic that I've chosen a series that has a message in it called The Land of If Not. And now The Land of If Not has gone from being a message title to having the potential to be a zip code of a residence. It's a lot more personal. And all I can do is pray. And in the quiet of the morning, pull out the x-rays and look at them over and over again and wonder. Habakkuk ends his book with one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Because he has entered the land of if not. He's writing a song from the depths of his heart. And in verses 3 through 16, he tells God, he tells, tells us how God has shown up in so many ways throughout history. With power, with strength. Those are the stanzas of the song. And when you get to verse 17, it actually forms the bridge of the song. Where Habakkuk hits his own if not. And he says, I know that you've done all of this before, but if not in my life, in my time, if not, here's what he says. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, if all of that happens, God, if the worst case scenario comes true, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk declares he will have faith in God even when there is no visible sign of God's presence or God's activity. He sang a song of joy to God, even when the most obvious sign of God's blessing, food on the table, even when that wasn't present. He stared into the probability of empty fig trees, bare olive trees, grapevines, empty, pasture lands littered with animal carcasses. Habakkuk realized that when the siege by Babylon was over, there very well could be nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and nothing to wear left in his country. And still, he declares, if I am stripped bare of everything, the very presence of God is enough for me. That's, if not faith. 
We've traveled with Habakkuk quite a journey in three chapters. What his story and all of Scripture teaches us is this, that sometimes God delivers us from. There are lots of examples of that in the Bible and even in our own lives. Noah was delivered from. He and his family lived safely inside of the boat, completely dry as the floodwaters covered the earth. Peter was thrown in jail as he taught the gospel. And yet, God delivered him from the jail, freed him miraculously from the jail. He didn't have to live in the jail and do his ministry from there like Paul did. And I love it when God delivers us from things in our lives, don't you? It's perfectly normal and natural and fine to pray that God will take things from us, deliver us from those things. Jesus even prayed that in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. It took over five weeks from that first doctor's appointment in April. A lot of tests, a lot of doctor's visits, a lot of waiting and a lot of prayer before Connie and I finally sat down with the specialist after the last test, and he looked at us and went, I don't know what they saw in the first test, but it's not there now. This is a simple cyst. Thanks. He said, honestly, it's not there. Go home and live your life. I said, that means no cancer? And he went, yeah, no cancer. Just go home. He said, these things happen when you get older. I went, oh, fine. You could have left that little parting shot off, you know? I was grateful to be delivered from. Six kidney stones are nothing compared to what it could have been. However, many times in our lives, God chooses not to deliver from, but to deliver through. Some people pray and God gives them a miraculous healing. Some people pray and God gives them miraculous grace that gets them through one day at a time. Daniel prayed, and he still had to go through the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prayed, and they still had to go into and through the fire. We love to read stories like that in the scripture and see the intricate and unexpected twists and turns in someone's life when God delivers them through. But sometimes when we read that, we miss the pain in their life, the angst and the the journey that they went on as they went through and God was delivering them. A journey through is a painful journey to walk. But done with integrity, done with honesty, done in a community of believers that surround you, we can emerge on the other side with a faith stronger than we could have ever imagined. But I would caution you, don't do that journey alone. Pull some people around you. Now, a community, a small group community. Because if you're not in a journey through yet, you will be. It's on the horizon for all of us. Sometimes God delivers through, sometimes from, and other times God delivers us later. Paul said he was plagued by some sort of thorn in his flesh. 
He wrote and said, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Strong words. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was for him. It may have been some kind of an addiction, some kind of a sickness, an illness, or some kind of a physical deformity. I have one friend, and she says she thinks that it was the Apostle Peter in his life. Because if you read the scriptures, there was this real rough relationship between the two of them. Got a friend like that in your life? You just picked up a new term for him. They're your thorn. Whatever it was, Paul not only prayed, he begged God three times to remove that thorn. God said to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Whenever I hear that verse, read that verse, see that verse, I think of Dale Kane. Dale was a pastor of a small church in southern Indiana and the father of two of my close friends. In his late 70s, Dale was diagnosed with throat cancer. He was given a choice. The cancer's inoperable, and so you can go through chemotherapy and radiation, or you can let it run its course. Chemotherapy and radiation carried a high probability that Dale would lose his voice, but it also carried with it the possibility of adding a year or more to his life. Without treatment, they gave him 12 months or less to live. After prayer, and after weighing the options, Dale chose to let the cancer run its course. And when we talked to Dale about that, he said he just wanted to continue to be able to talk to his family for the rest of his life, to teach in his church for as long as God gave him voice, and to be able, maybe even with his dying breath, to have the chance to talk to somebody about the grace that can be found in Jesus. Now, there were a lot of people who prayed for Dale to be delivered from. It didn't happen. But what did happen was pretty amazing to watch. Dale lived close to three years. He didn't lose his voice until nearly the end of his life, somewhere in the last month. He taught at his church right up to the point where he lost his voice. That little country church that he served in a small town in southern Indiana hadn't grown much for decades. But when people in that town got word that this pastor had cancer and that he was refusing treatments, they got curious. And they would stop Dale at the coffee shop or in a restaurant and say, is it true? Why wouldn't you take the treatments? And they'd sit down and have a conversation with him. And then they'd come to church just to hear him teach. Maybe it was their heart that changed. Maybe it was his heart. Maybe a little bit of both. 
But over the course of that three years, there were an awful lot of people in that town who found the grace of God. That little church more than doubled in size in that three years. And the heart of that church grew a lot more than that. God delivered Dale later. And it was amazing to watch. God's grace was made perfect in Dale's weakness. I don't know why some stories end up like mine. Where the reports end up being wrong and you don't have cancer. Whether it's the report was wrong or God healed somebody, God delivered from. Sometimes God delivers through and sometimes God delivers later. Sometimes we look at situations like Dale's and we think God didn't answer Dale's prayers and heal him. But I'm beginning to think that maybe our perspective is a little off. Maybe God answered our prayers for Dale in a way that none of us could have expected. Maybe his prayers got answered and his story ended in a way that was far better than any of us could have ever asked for or imagined. Maybe when he took his last breath and went to be in the presence of Jesus and he saw God's purpose for his life, he realized that his impact was far greater by what God walked through with him than it would have ever been any other way. Over and over again, God tells us, the Bible encourages us to take a longer look at life, to redefine our existence against the backdrop of eternity, to not just look at what's right in front of us, but to look down the road. Paul put it this way. He said, we don't look at the troubles we see right now. Rather, we fix our gaze on what we can't see. Because the things that we see now are going to soon be gone. And only the things we can't see are going to last forever. So as Jesus followers, we do the best we can. We're not perfect at it. But we do the best we can to redefine our lives against the backdrop of eternity. Because eternity puts everything in this life in perspective. Are we going to have a tough time in this life? Absolutely. Jesus promised we would. Just was straight up honest about it. I've never known anybody who chose to follow Jesus who had an easy life. Is it going to be worth it? Absolutely. You got an hour? I'll sit down and talk to you about it. How living for Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. It's way better than choosing to live without Him. And set against the backdrop of eternity, it's infinitely better to live with Him than without Him. I want to be more like Habakkuk. I want to be honest and wrestle with God in my prayers. I want to boldly talk about God's character, His love, His goodness, 
his faithfulness to me in my life. I want to have an honest faith that just talks about the realities of living for God. And it's not easy all the time. And when it's not easy, I want to be able to walk confidently into the land of if not. And I want to be able to say in those moments, God, I trust you with everything. I trust you with my life. And I don't care what comes. I don't care if this earth is shaken to its foundation. I want to walk with you because you are my strength. And if it is shaken to its foundation, as long as you are with me, that's enough. Is that enough for you? If God is with us, that's enough.